It is a a privilege of mine to be able to be with you this morning, and my name is Danny Donovan. I am the president of General Baptist Ministries, and um, I get the opportunity to get to visit lots of churches like this as part of my job. It's one of my favorite things that I get to do, because on a given Sunday, I might be here in Kentucky, have to bring my passport so I can get back into the United States when I go back to Missouri. Or I might be in Saipan visiting our church over there or in the Philippines, Um, get to be in Honduras, visit our our brothers and sisters there. Uh, I might have to go to Arkansas and hope I get to be able to return from there. So it's great to be able to do this. I love doing this. And I want to tell you that doing this actually is very encouraging to me because I get to see the ways that churches are being so faithful to the Lord in all these different contexts and all these different kinds of communities, from small towns like Poole to uh, big cities like Atlanta, Georgia. And God is being faithful in lots of places. We have all the reason to have hope because of what the Lord is doing. He is not finished with the church. He is actually doing great things right now. I want to say thank you to you for doing great things with us as General Baptists. We get to do some really great stuff because we partner together. Um, In the last year, just to give you a couple of insights, in the last year, we have gotten to plant a new church in Colorado, a church in Canyon City, Colorado, and actually in the process, we might even get to have a second church in Colorado in the next year or so, so excited about that. Um, We have been able to have lots of new leaders developed in our churches in our international fields, and those are very much growing right now. Um, I'm going to tell a little bit more of this story at the summit. I'm preaching some stuff about this uh, here in a a week or so at at our General Baptist Summit, Uh, but I got to be a part of 30 different ordination services internationally in 2022. We, we have churches that are growing, producing leaders, and sending them out to start churches. It's great stuff, exciting stuff. Um, and so whenever you, we do those things happen, I always tell, make sure that our staff understands this, and you, you hear it if you've seen any of our stuff in the last couple of years. I, I think that it's important that we realize that General Baptist Ministries is not doing that stuff. That's stuff that your church is doing because we get to partner together as churches to do some great stuff. And so we talk about that our purpose, the reason that we exist, is to be for the church. We're here simply to help facilitate you to do that kind of ministry. So that church that was, was launched in Colorado, that wasn't General Baptist Ministries that did that. That was you that did that. And I just want to say thank you for that. And I'm looking forward to continuing to do that kind of work together. Uh, Logan said something about the General Baptist Summit that's coming up next week. Um, I want to just encourage you, if you've signed up to come, we want you to be there for the whole thing. If you haven't, uh, this is like a one-time offer, okay? Not really, but um, if you don't want to come for the whole thing, but on Friday night, the 21st, if you are available, come to Evansville and come and be a part of that. You don't even have to register. Don't tell anybody on my staff I said that. You don't even have to register. Just come for the worship service that night. Um, now, the only bad thing is that I'll be preaching, but um, it'll be an exciting moment for us together. And I just want to say, come and be a part of it. And uh, as General Baptists from around the world, come and gather together as part of that. And we, we begin to look at where we're going in the next season. So I just want to invite you personally to come to that event. I want to uh, spend a few moments this morning just encouraging you from God's Word. 
uh, encouraging you with a story that is familiar to you, I, I, I venture to say, but also I want to put it in the context of what we know happened after the fact, and I think it's something that would enc- will be an encouragement for you this morning. So if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16, <clears throat> and in Matthew 16, I'm going to start reading there in verse number 13. So Julie Hensley texted me early this morning. Um, I've been friends with Julie and Alec for a long time. I started working with Alec, I think, 1998. Worked. I was at the university for many years. Uh, Julie and I probably did, I don't know, 3,000 contracts over the years together working for different stuff. I was vice president for academic affairs for the university for a while. Um, but So Julie texted me this morning. She says, well, you're going to be in a backdrop of a castle this morning. And uh, she said, just a reminder, you're not a king. <laughs> and I said, well, I would take, I could just be a knight. That'd be okay. And uh, then I said, as long, all right, anybody ever seen uh, Monty Python, Quest for the Holy Grail? I said, as long as there's no French soldiers back there throwing cows at me, I'll be all right this morning. So um, a little bit of uh, humor here before I, I launch into something much more specific and uh, much more uh, uh, important. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. It says, When Jesus had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the power of your word, for its ability to speak into our lives, and Lord, to form us into your children. We ask that today you would open it to us again, fill it with your Holy Spirit, and Lord, fill us with the Spirit that we may also be obedient to what you are calling us to do and to be. We pray you would be here among us and speak to us this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you would get to know me, there's something you should, that you'll find out pretty quickly. I am terrible at waiting on stuff. I am like, it's like a, a problem in my life. It's a sin. Would you pray for me about the sin of impatience a little bit? I, I have this as a problem. Um, you could ask my, my wife, Tara, and I have two daughters, one that's 19 and one that's 15. You can pray for me about all that as well, if you'd like. Uh, but it, if you ask them, they would tell you this about me, that this is something um, I don't like. For example, you can imagine my wife, two daughters. I wait forever to leave the house, most of the time, right? I wasn't there this, at, at the house this morning. I stayed in Evansville last night. 
I got up, I was here early. I mean, I drove around the country before I came to the church, and I was still here 30 minutes early, right? This never happens if I'm at home. Any other guys that you know, understand what I'm talking about? I like, Tara would say, we need to be ready to go at this time. I'm ready. I know I can go in the, in the kitchen, make a cup of coffee, sit down and wait, because I'm going to be waiting for a bit, right? But it drives me nuts. I'm like, can we go? Come on, let's go. And uh, so they, they constantly are, are upset with me about this. So um, I also would say, though, at the same time, like this waiting thing, uh, I, <laughs> we're none of us very good at it anymore, right? We, we all like to have everything instantly delivered to us, right? I, I, a few months ago, I tried to tell my daughters about renting movies like back in the 80s and 90s. You know, whenever you, and some of these younger kids, you don't even understand what I'm talking about now. We had to get in the car and drive somewhere and buy a little, you know, rent a little plastic box and hope the thing was at the store whenever we got there. I can remember the very first movie we ever rented on VHS. I think it was VHS. I don't think it was beta. But anyway, um, it was Back to the Future. That tells you how old I am. Um, but we, we, I had to wait like a month for it to be at the, the, at, the, at the store in order to get it. And so we had to go and get some. My daughters were like, what are you talking about? Why? Why couldn't you just get it on your TV? Right? Because we now have a remote. You speak to it, and it just puts it on the screen. And so we, we, don't, we, we don't do things like that anymore. We really like this ability to... Just have it. Write them right there. I'm, I'm one of these guys, I do like that kind of thing. I like the convenience of it, right? Uh, we, we like that kind of thing. And so we, I think, as a process of that, we no longer are very good at waiting at all. And in church, I think that the same stuff applies. So today, we're much more com comfortable today talking about having our best life now than we are about, you know, waiting for God to do what God is going to do. And so we're good at, like, celebrating the miracle of Easter. Easter's always immediate to us, but we're not very good at, like, waiting in the middle of the Saturday before to say anything about the sorrow and the suffering of Good Friday. We are instant gratification junkies. And so kind of waiting on stuff is it's now become countercultural. But I think that that is actually an essential part of being a Christian, especially today. I'm, my microphone's flipping up and down, so I'll continue to fight with it. Um, but I, whenever I think about this kind of waiting, I think it has to be a specific kind of waiting for us today that's helpful. And that is waiting in hope for something. Whenever I talk about this, whenever I talk about hope, I believe that the church and the Christian life is built on the idea of hope. And whenever I say hope, I don't mean hope like uh, I hope for something, like a wish. That's not what I mean. Um, it's not like I hope that I would get something for my birthday. My birthday was this week. I'm a 4th of July baby. I was born on the 4th of July of 1976, okay? And uh, so my parents named me Daniel so they could call me Yankee Doodle Danny. <laughs> they are very clever. Um, so, but on my birthday, I, I wasn't like I was going, well, I, I hope I get 
I didn't get anything. I didn't even get dessert because I'm on a, on a diet right now. Uh, I didn't get cake for my birthday. You can feel sorry for me. If you'd like, you probably shouldn't because the reason I'm in this mess is I've had a lot of cake over the years. So, But if you think about you know, that kind of, we, we use the word hope like that, like I hope I get something or I hope this happens. That's not what we mean when we're talking about hope. We're talking about biblical hope. We're talking about hope that is grounded in God's promises. I'm talking about hope like Abraham lived his life in hope because of what God had promised him. You know, Abraham was given the promise of being a great nation, of having uh, you know, all of these uh, descendants. He was given it to him when he was 75 years old. You'd think that'd be late enough in his life to wait, right? He waited 25 more years before it happened. It was 100. He waited in hope. Not because it was like, you know, obviously I'm going to have a child someday. He's like 100 years old. You'd think he would have given up at some point. But God was faithful because God's promises are true. I'm talking about the people of Israel waiting in hope for God to secure their release in the Exodus. Do you know how long they waited in Egypt? 400 years they waited in hope. With the knowledge, God had promised all the way back to Jacob that he would bring them back. It was sure, because God's promises are true. I'm talking about the people, whenever they, the Jewish people, whenever they go into exile in Babylon, they are in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Think about that. An entire generation comes up and passes, some of them pass away before they come back from the exile. They waited in hope because God said that there would be a remnant that would return. I'm talking about the church living in hope of the resurrection life in spite of the difficulties that surround us every day. I'm talking about hope that isn't about what's immediately present but about what is surely coming because God is always faithful. And so I want to reflect with you for just a few moments about that kind of hope and what it means for our lives whenever we look at it in, in, in light of, of what the Scriptures say. And to do that, I'd like to kind of walk through the story from our text this morning with the knowledge of what will ultimately happen. And so if you look at this text this text comes uh, in, Jesus is going to address multiple layers of reality. And I'm going to work through three different levels of layers of reality that Jesus addresses here. The first of these is, <clears throat> excuse me, what could be seen by, just by human natural perception. As Jesus and the disciples enter the story, it says that they enter the region of Caesarea Philippi. And that place was a significant one in light of what's going to happen here in this story. This town is named for the great Roman emperor Caesar Augustus. Thus it's called Caesarea, right? It's Caesar's town. And Philippi is the name, it's named after Herod the Great's son Philip, who would also rule here. There was another uh, Caesarea, but this one is the, the one that is close to the Jordan River in Galilee. It was an important military location, and it was known for one big thing that was for the worship of the Greek god Pan. And so Jesus is in this city dedicated to the ruler of the known world at the time, 
the ruler that was the one who was in charge whenever he was born. And he's entering a place that is known for the worship of a pagan god. And so we hear Jesus enter the city and, and begin to ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? And whenever we look at what, who Jesus is from purely natural perspective, these disciples give the answer that you would expect, actually. They say, you're a great prophet. In other words, you're one who speaks for God. Anybody could hear this, and who hears Jesus can see this. They say that he's John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, etc. And that's not a small thing to say about Jesus, right? Jesus, to be one of those guys, those are like the best of the best of the prophets, right? So for Jesus to be this, it's not a bad thing to say about Jesus. To call Jesus a prophet is not a bad thing, but it, it would be what they could see if you don't know anything else. You just see Jesus, you meet Jesus, you hear him speak, you're like, that guy, he's a prophet, right? And when we look at our lives through natural eyes like that, that kind of stuff can be really instructive for us. We need to face reality, I would say, in lots of circumstances. It isn't good to stick your head in the sand and ignore reality as it exists around you. When the doctor tells you that you need treatment because you're sick, you probably should listen, right? I probably should not have that pie for my birthday. Whenever we look at finances and our and look at our finances, and you, if you have more bills than you have paychecks, you have to do something. Stuff just doesn't magically appear there, right? You've got to face reality. Whenever we look at things through the eyes of natural reality, it sets kind of, I would say, a minimal context for everything else. If you stay with this idea for just a second, I want to compare this to how Jesus accomplishes salvation for us. You think about this, that the salvation that Jesus accomplishes for us is grounded in something that actually happens. Jesus' death on the cross was something that really happened. It wasn't like he just kind of, you know, he kind of died or he kind of looked like he died or uh, this was a great story that's told. It's something that actually historically happened. Jesus died. He ceased breathing. His heart stopped. He was dead, right? It's something that through the natural eyes was the end of his life. There's no reasons to think that there is anything more to be said. Jesus died. The end. That's usually the way that this works. They put him in a tomb, they seal it because the reality of every other death said that Jesus was done. There's nothing extraordinary about that death that way. Lots of innocent people die for very good reasons. That doesn't set Jesus apart. Jesus' death was a horrible, tragic event that really happened. He was murdered in the cogs of religious and political power. That's the history of it. And I bet there are times in your life whenever the reality of things is something that can be hard to handle. There's no use in saying that what you're experiencing isn't something that's real. So I think about, thought about this through the light of like the pandemic that we just lived through. I think it's over now. At least the government says that it is so. It has left a lot of churches that I love weaker. 
because of what happened during those times. It has, uh, the pandemic killed some people that I love. Um, it was during the pandemic my father passed away. And uh, that's real. That's something that really happened, right? The economy coming out of all this, it's crazy right now. Everything's kind of hard to navigate at the moment. Culture is shifting. We're a lot of us kind of wondering what's going to happen in the next little bit. And we're fearful because we know that things actually could get worse than they currently are. Everything, the words that I would use, I'd say, everything kind of seems fragile, right? And that is something that is real. Anyone who says that those things are not real is either a fraud or a fool. And so we feel the weight of that reality. And we listen to the disciples' response to Jesus' question, you're a prophet, that's a good thing, but it is what could be seen from natural perception. But that is only one layer of the reality here. There is another one. And that is that we have to look at things through the eyes of faith, too. You see, there's no sense denying that Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. Even, even Muslims agree with us on this, that Jesus is a prophet. Just as there's no sense in denying Caesar Augustus as the emperor, just as there's no use in denying that the Roman rule is powerful, just as there's no sense in denying that um, the worship of a pagan god is a popular choice, whenever we look at things through the lens, though, there is also something more. But to get a full perspective, we also have to look at things through the eyes of what faith can perceive. And so whenever we hear Jesus ask the question to the disciples, the first one about who do you, people say that I am, we get natural human perception. But then he follows up the question. He says, but who do you say that I am? And whenever he gets the answer this time, Peter will respond. And what Peter responds with is a statement of faith. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And those words, those are explosive statements at Caesarea Philippi. It's a claim, you think about this, you are Messiah, right? It's a claim that Jesus is the real king with the real authority. That not Caesar, but Jesus is the one that is in charge. And then it says that Jesus is the son of the living God. A living God, not some fake God that they're worshiping there in Caesarea of Pan. So Jesus is the Messiah, the real king, and he's the son of the real God. And so you see that Caesar is king, Jesus is a prophet, that would seem what natural uh, perception could tell you, right? And Jesus will get killed like other prophets get killed for their message. Reality says that pagan worship is the popular choice, and it's really hard to go against the mainstream. But what Jesus hears Peter say, he says, is something that Peter did not get from, man, from merely human perception. It wasn't given to him by flesh and blood. Instead, it was something that Peter knew because there was a deeper reality. According to Jesus, it was something that had been revealed to Peter by God himself. Sometimes when we look at a reality of a situation, we need to ask that deeper question about what is really going on. We need to look at what is uh, happening in reality of something, and we can say that a situation is difficult. We could say even sometimes it feels hopeless. 
But there is, if you believe in God, there is something more going on. Again, if I go back to my earlier point about what Jesus does to accomplish salvation, indeed, the cross of Jesus was a real death, right? But that, was, that real death was not the total picture of what is going on on Mount Golgotha. God was working to do something more than just see the death of Jesus. God was accomplishing salvation for the world through that death. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself through that cross, Paul says. Even though it was just a Roman death device, Christians today, we, we use the sign of the cross, but whenever we see the cross, we don't just see it as, as some device of death. We see it as something a whole lot more. We see it as something that God was using to bring us life, right? If you think about it, it'd be really weird to use a device of death as a symbol if it didn't have a deeper meaning. I mean, the cross is not that much different than you know, like the electric chair. Can you imagine putting an electric chair up on the wall of a church or wearing an electric chair around your neck? Right? That doesn't make any sense. It is only because the cross is doing much, much more that we see what, what is going on beyond what the eyes can see that the cross has its significance. When we look at our situations, we need to be asking if maybe there is something more that can be seen through the perspective that God has than what we can see from our perspective. That is, instead of looking at things through the eyes of natural human perception, it is seeing things through a deeper perception to see what's really going on. I said something about the pandemic a minute ago and those things being real. But God, I have also seen God do some amazing redemptive work during this time. I've seen churches take the opportunity to clarify who they are and they've come back stronger than they were before. I've seen leaders who were very good leaders in 2019 learn about themselves, learn about ministry, and today they're better than they were. The fearful future that's right in front of us, I do think it's something we need to face with reality, but we also require, we're required to look and see what is God doing and simply go and do what God and follow him in that mission in the world. So through natural eyes, Jesus is a prophet. Peter sees through the eyes of faith, faith that Jesus is more. Jesus is also the Messiah, the son of the living God, but that is not the end of this story. You see, Jesus goes on to turn the question about the current situation into a question about what is going to come. And so there is actually a third layer of reality that Jesus will address. So after saying that Jesus' words were from God, he also says this. He says, and you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So what Jesus is doing here is that he's pointing beyond his ministry on earth, he's pointing to a time when Peter will be leading the church. And you look at this text, there's lots of arguments about this text. So uh, Catholics, for example, look at this text and argue that Jesus is saying that the foundation of the church is Peter, and thus the Pope has the authority of the church because he's the heir of Peter. Uh, pro obviously, Protestants, we don't interpret the text that way. It's common for us to make a distinction between the name Peter. By the way, word, the name Peter is the word for rock. So on this rock, I will build my church. It's common to make the distinction that Peter, the name, which is a, the Greek word that would basically mean a rock you could hold in your hand, is different from the rock on which Jesus says he will build the church. 
And that rock there is the word Petra, meaning a cornerstone, a stone too big to move. And so we would, most often we make this argument that uh, the confession of Peter, that Jesus says that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that that is the rock that Jesus is speaking of, not the person Peter. Um, honestly, I don't care. Um, I don't think it's important to the text as much as we sometimes make it out to be because of this one fact. The importance of the, and the significance of what Jesus says here is not Peter, and it's not our confession of faith. Who builds the church? Not Peter, not us. It is Jesus that says that on this rock, he would build his church. Jesus is, in saying this, he's making a promise to us. Something that goes beyond not only natural human perception, he's making a promise that goes even beyond the wildest idea of what anyone, Peter, with all of his faith, could ever have perceived. Jesus is making a promise that turns this whole scene upside down. He says that he will build his church. He will build that church and these gathered people that are called out from the world, that no one and nothing will ever be able to overcome them. This is a picture of hope. We have reason here to have hope in the promises of God. As I said earlier, hope isn't a wish. Hope is grounded in those promises, even when they fly in the face of everything that is right in front of us. So today in our world and in the face of everything we experience, I believe that the church needs to again claim this hope we find in this promise of Jesus. So that when everything feels off kilter, when death even seems to be right up against us, when the very foundations of the church seem to be fragile in the face of our current moment, we need to listen to the promise of Jesus again. I will build my church you think it's about what you do? You think it's about any culture or any time, what it can ultimately do? You think it's about whether people agree with us about everything or not? You think it's about whether there's a certain president in charge of any country in the world or not? No. Jesus says, I will build my church and nothing could stand against it. I said a few minutes ago that I... We talked about the cross. Let's go on. The resurrection story of Jesus. And in it, you see the reality that Jesus did die. He also died a death that gives us life as a ransom for us. But then after that, the most unexpected thing happens. When everything pointed to the cross as being the end of things, whenever Jesus' tomb was closed and it was cold when it seemed that Jesus was just another prophet who had died for his cause. It was in that moment that Easter Sunday dawns. And with it comes all kinds of new possibilities. Christ's work was not finished. In fact, he had just begun. The resurrection of Jesus is hope fulfilled and it turns reality on its head and it says that God is always the one that's in control no matter what you think might be happening. It was in that moment that everything changed. It was in that moment that our salvation was truly secured and hope was made possible. What's even more 
Jesus promised that he would build his church. It was secured by that same resurrection, and nothing can stop it. The question for us today is not whether or not Jesus will build his church. The question for us is whether we are going to believe him. You see, the eyes of hope go beyond what can be seen at any moment, and they rest in what God has promised to do. So look at the realities you can see. Face those realities. Look at them through the eyes of faith. But then trust in God's promises. I want to close with an observation I think puts this whole story of hope and clear relief. See, Jesus tells Peter that on this rock, he would build his church. And Peter will ultimately spend the rest of his life trying to work out those, those words in his life. It will be Peter who will stand before the people on the day of Pentecost. It will be Peter that gets to preach that very first Christian sermon. It will be Peter who will be the one to preach the moment when the very first Gentile converts are made. And at the end of his life, actually, I wonder what Peter thought about all of it. I've thought about this quite a bit, about whether Peter looked at things and wondered whether it all mattered or not. Have you ever been there? Wondered whether what you've done mattered? Did all of this work that he did to start little communities, churches all around the world that he knew, did all of his sacrifice, would the church last? Would it make it? Did it make any difference? Do you know what happens to Peter? Peter, we think, was killed by the Romans, just like Jesus was. The tradition is that he was crucified in Rome in about the year 64, roughly 30 years after Jesus. The same empire that killed Jesus would kill Peter. It would seem that the Caesars really were the ones in control. In fact, the tradition is that Peter was killed in a place called Nero's Circus. Nero was the emperor at the time. He was the Caesar. And Nero famously made sport of Christians. It was at Nero's Circus that he would impale Christians on poles and he would light them on fire as literal human torches to illuminate his parties. So Peter goes to his death, probably at Nero's Circus, and I wonder if he asked himself the question, did any of it matter? I'm right back here where Jesus was. And if we could go back and talk to Peter, you know what I would tell him? It worked. It absolutely worked. Because Jesus built his church. Jesus was faithful to his promises. And so that today, Christians are all around the world of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And those little communities that Peter helped to start, Jesus has built them so that they cover the globe today. And listen to this. Rome, Rome you know, is to us ancient history, right? Every time the Romans tried to stop the church, Jesus was faithful. Jesus built the church and it came back even stronger. And this man, Nero, that killed Peter, he's barely remembered as anything more than just a man who killed Christians, who was kind of loony. In this place where Peter dies, Nero's circus, you know what's on that spot today where Peter was martyred? 
Today on that spot is where the largest Christian church in the world sits. And get this, you know what it's called? St. Peter's. Jesus builds his church. He keeps his promises. So I don't know how you are feeling about things today. I don't know about what you see right in front of you. I don't know about the realities that are staring you in the face. I don't know if you're excited or if you're scared or you're a little bit of both. But this is something that I know. God always keeps his promises. Even when we can't see it. Even when it seems like he's not. He is. You have reason for hope. And so I would say to you, stand on the promises of God. Stand your ground. Preach the word of God in your life. Be bold. Trust in him. He will be faithful. Let's pray. Jesus, you have never failed us. You have never failed your church. You have always been faithful to build your church. Lord, sometimes we are afraid that something we do will destroy it, or we're afraid that something that the world is going to do to the church is going to somehow stop it. But Lord, you've never been stopped. You've never even hesitated. You've always been faithful. Father, I pray you would give us the faith to trust you. To trust you so that we can be bold and do what's necessary today. I pray, Lord, that you would give this church boldness in this community. Lord, nothing can stop them if you are building this church. Father, I ask that you would bless them. Lord, and if there's someone here this morning who is questioning your faithfulness in their life, Father, I pray you would reassure them that you know exactly what's going on and you are always faithful to your people. We ask for your presence in our lives. And Lord, we ask that you would use us to continue to do your work to build the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.